Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 116, the traditional three-year retreat. Intensive training for a non-existent job. This week we speak with Lama Sarah Harding, a student of the late Kalu Rinpoche, about the traditional three-year retreat of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. We have a very special guest today, someone who we've been trying to get on the show, and we finally convinced or coerced her enough to do it, Lama Sarah Harding. Vince and I have both taken courses with her, so... She's a teacher for us. And um, the good news is that you, we're going to do this in Tibetan, the whole, the whole interview. So you may not get much out of it, but it'll be fun. Good news for you too. <laughs> so um, Lama Sarah Harding has been doing the Dharma for a long time. Your primary teacher is Kalu Rinpoche. Right. But you've worked with a lot of teachers, especially through oral translation and translating books. Yes. That's right. Are there any teachers in particular that... After Kala Rinpoche that yeah. I've worked with, yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, uh, like Kempo Tsultrim, Tranga Rinpoche, mm-hmm. recently Ganteng Tuku, not recently, it's already like 15 years, <laughs> uh, translating for Ganteng Tuku in Bhutan, and oh, there's lots. Yeah. I, you, I, I don't even want, you know, I'm sure. I'm right. Like, you're really going to leave a whole bunch of people It's out. better to not yeah. say anything. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're still doing oral translation, yeah? Not so much. Not I, so much I pretty much tried to officially retire from that. <laughs> It's a it's a big need, right? In the community, there's not that many people out there who can. It is, and um, but I feel like it's sort of a young person's job, um, not as rewarding as it used to be, and also extremely difficult. Actually, don't you have to spend kind a, of a I'm, brain burn? You know that I'm not right. Um, and like in my situation, where I was translating for various people, um, not just one, right? Then they all have different accents and they all talk about different things and the d- different terms and it's hard to keep up. Right. Itinerant translation. Yeah, what I gathered is that you really have to spend a lot of time with the teacher. Yeah, the, and then and you the, have to the go and stay in all these crummy Dharma centers in the basement with, you know, laundry <laughs> or something. I mean, it's just not, you know, you're away from home. That I sounds mean, delightful. I don't yeah, know what's no. the problem. It, the laundry's probably warm, right? <laughs> yeah, it smells like, I don't know. What's that stuff they put in fabric softener? Right. <laughs> so you probably smelled that like that for permanently for like ten years, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. At least you smell nice. But you are still doing um literary translation. Yeah, and, and that was the other reason. You know, I have three jobs actually. I have the job teaching at Naropa and then I have the written translation and then there was the oral translation. It was like one too many right. jobs. <laughs> right. So some of your books that you've translated or texts, I just want to mention, and you, it sounds like you have a whole bunch that you've translated over time, but there's a few standouts, uh, Creation and Completion, Machik's um, Complete Explanation, Treasury of Knowledge, Esoteric Instructions, and that one's part of a big series of, mm-hmm. um, and will you say a little bit about that? The Treasury of Knowledge, yeah, yeah by Jamgun Control. It's one of his five treasures, uh, Jamgun Control, you know, like 19th right. century great. Uh, teacher and master and brilliant genius. And that was actually the series that Kala Rinpoche, when he started our translation group, 
um, that was his request, that mm. that's what... And so we all started with Kala Rinpoche in India and uh, other teachers who he invited and started working on it. And it's taken very long, much longer uh. than anyone expected. And Rinpoche had been very... You know, he really wanted it to finish before he died, and that, of course, that didn't happen. Right. And so it's been about 15 years, I think, that it's been... But there's six, seven volumes out now. It'll be a total of about 10, so it's getting close. Cool. and It's a, it's a must-have for any Buddhist geek. Right. There you go. <laughs> totally. I have a few myself. And, and as we mentioned, you teach at Naropa. And how long That's have you been right. teaching at Naropa? Oh, gosh, since 1992. 1992? Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. And you've... Long. You've uh, done some Tibetan language and you've done... Yeah, I have almost every subject you can think of. You've taught there. Yeah, including, you know, beyond Buddhism, like all religions, General, oh, yeah. stuff I didn't know anything about. So it was always fun. Good. Cool. <laughs> one major topic we want to talk with you about is the... You've been on... You did one or two, three retreats. Just only one. <laughs> You're like... <laughs> We already have some insight. <laughs> <laughs> Only one. Only one. <laughs> no more. Only 1,000 days and nights. Okay. Well, this is something that a lot of people have asked questions about, and we haven't got to sit down to talk with anybody who's done it. Um, uh-huh. So, especially a Westerner. Very few left to tell of it. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be good then. Good. Um, well, we have, qu- we have some questions, you know, uh, about the actual doing that kind of retreat practicalities yeah. of it. And we can kind of just jump around too. And anything that pops up in your head, just feel free to go to town on Unfortunately, it. I'm known for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we love about you. <laughs> okay. um, so first off, I mean, is this happening as much as it used to? I mean, I don't, I don't even know if, how many people have done it in the past. If it was something that people did a lot more when the Tibetan teachers first came over and then had people do yeah. it. And I know it's still happening, but how much? Well, I did the very first one in the West. You know, it was started in 1976. So that time there was, you know, seven of us. I mean, it was like in the world. Um, And then that one finished in 1980. And then after that, there was suddenly about four or five of them. And then it seems to almost um, actually increase exponentially. And I think there's a lot. And some that I've heard of have had like a lot of students, like in the hundreds. So Mm, wow. I think, and then there's all these new versions of it. I mean, in the yeah, this you know, is partly what I want to talk yeah, about too. Yeah, I mean, new so versions, that right? So they're called three retreats, but that they've been aren't changing three years. Well, let's talk about when you did the three retreat. It's probably mm-hmm. more in line with the traditional. Yeah, it was retreat. very traditional, and it, in fact, it was based on the Jangan Control's retreat that he uh, established at Peipong in Kham, you know, in Tibet, and then Kala Rinpoche was the retreat master there. So Kala Rinpoche just you know, did what he always did, which was right. those three retreats. Wow. He modified it just a little, you know, for just us. Just a little bit. Like, because we were such wimps. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So what's the general main thrust of doing a three retreat? What's the purpose? Like, why even go on one of those? Oh, wow. Just to give Gosh, that, I mean. I don't know. I should have asked. I forgot to ask <laughs> What the that. hell am I doing here <laughs> in this little <laughs> box? I bet you wondered. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. <laughs> How are we going to do yoga? I knew there was something I forgot. Um, yeah. Well, at least oh, let's start boy. with what it, what it, what the main intention would be if it was in a traditional Tibetan model. Like That's when a you good did question. It. Yeah. Well, the traditional model, which is something we didn't know or find, you know, figure out for quite a, a ways. If you know, maybe some people never do, but really, it's part of the education of a teacher or a lama in Tibet, where they would 
be hopefully doing both, you know, Shedra and Drupdra, which would mean they'd be studying, mm-hmm. or they could, and that's a monastic college, and then also practicing in a, you know, retreat situation. So that's a full education, and, you know, it basically produces, you know, lamas who can then go and, you know, be in the village monasteries or whatever to right. hold that. And that's something um, that obviously... As some one friend of mine put it, who also did the retreat, you know, an intensive training for a non-existent job when it comes to Westerners. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminds you of Naropa. Sure, I shouldn't sure. Really say that, but... Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I know this. <laughs> yeah, you guys know. <laughs> but, um, but even more so. Yeah. Because there's a lot of ritual, you know, and also big discovery. Big, big insight is that, you know, uh, Vajrayana is mainly ritual, so... Uh-huh. There's a lot of that. And um, I mean, if you really, if to really do it, you know, if you look at like the esoteric instructions on doing it, then, you know, it it gives you an opportunity to really get teachings and instructions and practice that you couldn't really get anywhere else. And these kind of instructions are actually not given except in a retreat situation, most of them. Mm. So, you know, it's an opportunity to do that and to immediately put them into practice and to put them into practice without any interruption. Mm. So that if you were going to really try and experience what it was like to do these practices intensively, that this would be the opportunity. And, and in that, it was like a really great opportunity. I mean, I've never stopped feeling gratitude that, you know, I had that chance. I remember you saying in one of the classes that we took that you started off with the preliminary practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did those first again. I mean, yeah. everyone had already done them okay. at least once or sometimes twice or more. But then we had to do them again within the retreat. Gotcha. Yeah. And then what other kinds of practices did you uh, did you do after that? Well, there were a lot of, uh, what <laughs> to, to use a phrase from one of my books, creation phase practices, you know, visualization of deity practices of a number of the major practices within, for our retreat, for within the Shangpa lineage and the Kargyu lineage and the Nyingma lineage. So we had all three. And then we'd do completion phase practices such as the six dharmas, you know, like Tumo and stuff like that. Yeah, like the Naropa. Yeah, six, six dharmas of Naropa. Six, we did three six dharmas. We did <laughs> Naropas, Nagumas, and Sukha cities. So you guys were just like sampling the different yeah, sixes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. See, and that's one of the actual things that the, what I was saying, you know, what we didn't realize at first is that you do sample a whole lot so that in the Tibetan tradition, you can't teach anything unless you've practiced it. So they mm-hmm. try and get you to practice a lot of them. And some people would rather have done more practice on one, you know, to go oh, deeper. Right. But that's not the, what Rinpoche had in mind. Mm. Yeah, How long would so. you be doing each of these practices? It varied. I think we n- didn't do any one practice for more than six months. So, but more often it was one month. Okay. Wow. Yeah, on each, you know, or you know, the the preliminaries took four months. Right, but, and then you, I remember you said you did like two months of shamatha, and it was usually only one month. Yeah, but you guys needed a little. Yeah, extra. Yeah, we wanted extra. <laughs> yeah, we, we said we we need extra more. helping. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's cool. And he did give us that. And you said that uh, people would do the preliminary practices before the retreat? Were, were there yeah. other sort of uh, prerequisites? Well, there were three prerequisites at that time. I don't know how it is now. Right. One was, yeah, to do the preliminary practices. Um, another, The second was to be fluent in Tibetan because all the instruction was in Tibetan and mm-hmm. all the texts and practices were in Tibetan. And then the third was to have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Those three. 
So, I mean, how fluent were people when they went in? Because that's what I would want to fluent. Wow. I mean, and yeah, certainly enough to understand the teachings. Oh, okay. And and Rinpoche would teach totally in Tibetan? and Yeah. Well, Rinpoche would teach totally in Tibetan, obviously, but he didn't stay there for the whole three years. We had right. our own retreat master. Okay. And he only also knew only Tibetan. So, so yeah. for you, what... I know there's probably many challenging things. So what was the most challenging for you? Oh, in that? gosh. Um, the most challenging... Well, I mean, the challenges went in phases. <laughs> you ah. know, the first challenge was, you know, your legs hurting. And then the second challenge was how cold it was in France without heat. Mm. And then the third, you know, they went on not lying down was a challenge, not getting out of the box. Um and then they also, you know, a real big... What box are you talking about? Just for <laughs> people box, that don't know, yeah. The box that we live in, you know. Is the, the little... Yeah, you're in a meditation box and that's where you Liter- sleep. A literal box. Yeah, literally a box. Do you and still then, sleep in a box? No. <laughs> Some people do, though. Our meditation uh, retreat master, for instance, has always never been out of his box all wow. these years. But, um, yeah, that was hard because you used to lying down to sleep and we didn't lie down. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that's really challenging, and I'm sure that everyone agrees, even though it's really not said too much, is your fellow retreatants. Very challenging. <laughs> Do you, so <laughs> did you have a lot of interaction? I mean, I, well, we did, um, yeah, we did two, not a lot of interaction, hmm. but enough when enough you're in a retreat situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did two meditation sessions together a day, which, you know, like, which, which is a ritual uh, practice, you right. know, like puja. And then we, we went and got our meals in the same place, although we went and ate them in our own rooms. And then we had to, yeah, kind of coordinate things when they happened. And yeah, cool. we saw plenty of each other. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what was, um, I'm wondering, the last challenge, was it related to coming out of the retreat and entering oh, yeah, the world? yeah, definitely. I mean, was that's a that way like? bigger challenge than going into retreat by far. Yeah, how was that? That for was you? Um, wow. Well, at the first, it was what it was incredibly wonderful. Like at the very first, you know, I always thought it was like having your, you know, your eyes peeled or something. Everything was so new and fresh and amazing, and nothing was, nothing bothered you. Everything was just part of this amazing display that was infinitely interesting. But then, you know, then like it hits after a while, and we used to have a group. It was almost like a support group, but some of us got together and we all kind of figured it was about 10 years of recovery before you even knew that you had to recover. So, yeah, I would say re-entry is very difficult and uh, there's a lot of issues about it. And there's no help. Nobody kind of tells you. There's no post-recovery. Yeah, there's no, I mean, there's, for one thing, different than traditional retreats where they would go back into a, you know, a context. Right. And they'd start teaching. And maybe, maybe yeah. they'd, you know, start teaching in a monastery that was a lot like their monastery. And, you know, they'd be back into the scene. And in, in the West, you're just basically dropped off on the street corner, you know? Wow. And yeah, it's confusing. What have I, what did I just do? What right. do? And what do I do with it? And how does it fit in with yeah. the and, rest of my life? And have you ever tried to, you know, put it on a job application or something, you know? <laughs> Three-year retreat. I mean, <laughs> you know, or, I mean, you really can't relate to anybody. Well, maybe like all extreme experiences, 
like being in a battlefield or something, you mm. you can't really tell what it was like. Like mm. you can't, you know, they don't. Nobody gets it, so it's very isolating in a way. I would think a lot of people would imagine that it would just be nothing but roses after coming back. It's like, oh, I did three years of really good practice. That's oh, good well, for me. And then you come out of it, and you're supposed to be like, oh, everything's great. But actually, it can be quite the opposite. I, you, yeah, I mean, if I had felt like, oh, I did three years of really good practice, yeah. it might have been different. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I don't really know anybody who feels that. Yeah. Because, you know, three years sitting with yourself, you really can't fake it anymore. Mm. And, you know, it's very humbling. It's extremely humbling. Like, I think if someone mm. comes out thinking they're all really special, they didn't do it right. Yeah. Right, right. Does everyone have success would be like a weird word to use with it. I know this, but I'm saying like, does anyone break down in the, in like unhealthy ways? Oh, the, sure. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, is it just the nature of doing that or is there some sort of predisposition to coming into the retreat that like makes it more doable to do that long of a retreat or what? You mean like it attracts all the crazies? No, no, no. <laughs> I, that'd be a good question. But um, no, just like, like all like, Dharma centers. What makes the difference? You know, why, why does one person uh, go in and, and yeah. at least survive the whole experience and one person right. not. I think, um, well, of course there's training and readiness um, right. and that's an important factor. But yeah, I think people bring in whatever their state of their psyche and they come in and then they then they are put in a pressure cooker because it's it's not relaxing. It's very rigorous, mm-hmm. contemplative rigor, right? Mm-hmm. It's And then so if there's anything there, it's exacerbated. Mm. If, you, if there's no opportunity to work it out. And what it's not, at least in most of the retreats, or at least certainly in ours, it's not any uh, space for sort of working things out in a therapeutic way. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't done that previously, um, and if there's a lot to work out, then it can be a um, very bad result. Mm. Sure. And and I'm, I'm guessing there's not really, since you did it in such a traditional way, there wouldn't be really a, a knowledge from the teachers about the way the western yeah, psyche might work. Yeah, for us it was an especially hard yeah. one because there was no kind of common ground You guys were kind teachers. of like the guinea yeah. pigs. Yeah, we were. <laughs> and in fact, it was interesting because in the France where we did it, nobody had signed up until we came out. And like they were all waiting to see what for we would be one. like before anybody signed up for the next one. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, interesting. There were a whole ton of people there. Watching you. Yeah, watching us come out. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And Rinpoche had us teach. We all had to give a, t- a teaching, you know, so it was kind of like our first, I don't know, it was a symbolic thing that he had us each teach. Mm. So. But then people signed up, so I guess we somehow got by with it, got <laughs> away with it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in the West, it seems that small retreats are pretty popular, you know, like month-long retreats. yeah. Is there an advantage or a difference for, I'm assuming there is, oh, between yeah, like say, say if you do the same amount of months over a lifetime versus a three-year retreat, like what's the, what are the advantages? I think it's um, personally, well, I mean, I, I can't compare because I haven't done like, what would that be, 24, 36 months yeah. separately right, right. <laughs> of yeah. retreat in my life. Yeah. And there's a lot of different retreats now that have various components where it all adds up yeah. to the same practices, but it seems to me it would be totally different. Mm-hmm. Um and I feel like they're missing out a little on some of the advantages of a long retreat like this because you really do let go after a while. 
I mean, very few people can really manage to keep connections in the world for that long. And so most everyone kind of arranges to cut off connections and um, you really stop. After a while, you just run out of fuel uh, mm. to distract you. You really do. You can't remember what you used to think about <laughs> and waste all that time thinking about, you know? You just and so that's a great opportunity, and then it's such a help unless you have like incredible contemplative rigor, you know, which I I doubt yeah. I would have ever had on my own doing a month. A month is nothing, you know. I was distracted for the whole last month of three year retreat, thinking of getting out. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> but there's other advantages to short ones, and they're different. It's just a different thing. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And the last, at least the last question I have, I don't know if you have more, Vince. The differences, you said that, that a lot of them are changing now, what the three-year retreat is. What are the differences or how is it evolving and changing um, in the West? Well, there's, you know, for instance, there's ones that are, uh, like they do at Gampo Abbey where, well, first they tried to do six months in, six months out, and then it got to be a year in and you're on. I've kind of lost track of how they're doing it now. And... um and that was trying to accommodate the fact that most people are lay people that are doing that and have jobs and families or whatever. But, you know, I think it's quite, I, I think that would be much more difficult, much more difficult, you know, to, then you have to get it back together. You have to go through the re-entry trauma every, many more times, and then you have to arrange everything again to go back in and you lose the continuity of it. And, but that's, one way of doing it, it, it might allow you to keep your job or something, although I don't know too many people who can leave for six months every couple of years and what kind of job that is. But that was an attempt at that. And then there's various versions of that, all kinds now. I keep hearing new ones almost, you know, almost every week or something. Of, you know, it's put out over a 10-year period and you would finish all the same practices and mm -hmm. And I think they're all good experiments. You know, everyone's trying to, it's such a radical thing to take the whole three years, three months off of your life. But on the other hand, um, you know, it's been an age old realization that, you know, you, you have to give up something mm. for spiritual practice. You mm. know, if you're not willing to do that, it may not be as fruitful. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm for it all. And are people still having to be very fluent in Tibetan? to do it? Well, in my tradition, in Kala Rinpoche's tradition, um, just before he died, Boko Rinpoche, who's, who's the successor of Kala Rinpoche, agreed uh, through various dreams and all kinds of things that it could be done in English. So it's oh. in the process of all being, the practices all being translated. Wow. But other groups, such as the, you know, Shambhalabhus, they do it all in English. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, 
as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.